Welcome to the Voice Over Work podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services. Today is Friday, June 11th, 2021. On the podcast today, we'll take a little deeper look into a book introduced in a previous podcast with a chapter-by-chapter look at An Updated Investment Strategy for the Intelligent Investor, a stock market investment guide to grow and protect your money using dynamic portfolio management. Written by Tom Cromwell, narrated by Russell Newton. Introduction. Almost 50 years have passed since Benjamin Graham wrote his seminal work, The Intelligent Investor. Right now, at the start of 2021, I suspect he would be thinking another stock market bubble. What's incredible is that most investors would agree with him, according to Robert Schiller's Crash Confidence Index, but the bubble keeps growing and growing. I was recently rereading The Intelligent Investor, and although I still agree with the fundamentals, I realized that much of the advice was last updated in 1972. Fifty years of massive change in our markets, society, and technology has rendered a lot of the more specific information dated and worthless. Although Jason Zweig issued an updated version in 2003, this was written in the immediate aftermath of the technology bubble and has been overly influenced by those events. For example, Zweig specifically mentions the crash in Amazon stock values, which looks pretty silly now, as anyone who wrote out the whole cycle would have made a fortune, let alone anyone who jumped in in 2002. Correspondingly, I've decided it was time to return to the themes of the intelligent investor, but bring the advice up to date. Graham expounds on the correct ratio of bonds versus stocks and draws on the experiences of the 1950s and 60s, their inflation records, and stock market crashes. The advice that he gives for a defensive investor to be 50% in bonds would have seen much of their value destroyed in the high inflation 1970s, although shares also had bad periods in 73 and 74. What does the last 50 years tell us? We've almost doubled the data that Graham was working with. And what are the current trends? On the other hand, some of Graham's advice is timeless. Chapter 1. Who is the Intelligent Investor? To invest successfully over a lifetime does not require a stratospheric IQ, unusual business insights, or inside information. What is needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. Warren E. Buffett forward to the Intelligent Investor, revised edition. I originally read The Intelligent Investor back in the early 1990s, and it helped cement my views that value investing was the way to go. I recently picked up the revised edition, updated, 2003, with additional comments by Jason Zweig. It prompted me to think that the revised edition was now almost 20 years old, and the original was last updated by Graham in 1972. What struck me was that although many of the fundamental principles are sound, some things scream out at you. For example, nobody's been running portfolios of 80% bonds and 20% stocks. Even the most cautious have probably not been 50-50, which Graham recommends for the average defensive investor. 
It's worth examining what would have happened if you had done this and the reasons why this shift has taken place. Sweek's commentary drew heavily on the background of the tech crash in 2001, in which he casually dismisses Amazon shares as victims of said bubble. Seen now in the context of the past 20 years, we can draw some different conclusions about winners and losers. Even those who bought the stock at its height, adjusted for stock splits in December 1999 at $106.69 and before the crash, would still now be sitting on a $3,000 per share increase. However, they would have... Chapter 2. The Secret Key to the Global Economy For the past 30 years, unleashed by the demise of the USSR and communist ideology, globalization has been a driving force in the global economy. In this context, by globalization, we mean the increase in the flows of goods, services, ideas, and people across international frontiers. In reality, the most significant events were not the fall of the Iron Curtain and entry of Eastern Europe, but the entry and participation of China and India in the global economy. The mobilization of these three sets of low-cost workforces has driven down global inflation rates and propelled a massive shift of labor-intensive manufacturing to these locations. It has massively increased international trade as a whole from commodities, which have been in a long super cycle, through goods and into services. In 1992, the value of world trade was $2.47 trillion, and by 2018, it was $5.63 trillion. I'm not here to discuss the social pros and cons of this, only to observe the effects as it pertains to the global economy and our investment posture. World trade and GDP have grown in tandem for the last 10 years. Both have increased by 26% since 2008. WTO Statistical Report 2019 Through the past 30 years, inflation has generally been falling and so have interest rates until they reach current lows. Arguably, this has been made possible as the increasing globalization has kept goods and services ultra-competitive. Even in developed economies, labor markets have been fed a diet of... Chapter 3. Warren Buffett versus Kathy Wood or Growth Stocks versus Value Stocks Welcome to the contest for the heavyweight investor of the millennium. In the red corner, we have Warren Buffett, value investor extraordinaire, and the reigning champion with a 50-year pedigree of investing that's taken his investment fund, Berkshire Hathaway, to be one of the largest companies on the Dow Jones. Meanwhile, in the blue corner, we have the challenger, Kathy Wood, new kid on the block, guru of the growth of investors, and whose ARKK fund has been setting investment markets alight in the past few years. What a contest this promises to be. Who is the better investor and which strategy should you follow, growth or value? To illustrate the relative merits of either value or growth investing and understand the ethos that lies behind them, I thought it would be illuminating to draw on the public personas and pronouncement from two of the arch proponents of these investing styles. If you've followed the business news at all in the past few years, you're likely to have heard of both our protagonists, as they are well known. 
While we discussed in Chapter 1 what can be considered the manifesto for value stocks, which we will recap, however, what defines a growth stock is not so clear-cut. Whereas, I think that there would be a fair degree of similarity in the measures used by most value investors, I doubt the same can be said of growth stocks. Indeed, I don't think you boil Kathy Wood's investments ethos down to a simple set of numbers. Value Stocks Here's a quick refresher of what a value stock might look like in terms of the accounts. I want to go over this again because growth stocks can, to some extent, be the opposite. Chapter 4, Active versus Passive Investing We spent the last chapter looking at the relative merits of two investment styles, both of which are based on active management. Active management means that the investor tries to identify and buy stocks that they believe are going to do well. Conversely, you'll try and sell them when your opinion changes, for whatever reason. On the other hand, passive management eschews that approach, and instead, it tries to provide only average performance as measured against an index of choice. A passive fund aims to match the performance of the index by buying a range of stocks that closely mimic the characteristics of the index. When significant stocks join the index, it will purchase them too, and it will sell stocks that fall out of the index. This is possible because indexes are weighted towards the most significant stocks. For example, the current largest 10 stocks make up nearly 30% of the S&P 500 index. By the time you hold 100 to 120 stocks, you'll get a very close match to the index. What is the attraction of passive or index investing? Firstly, most people investing through a pension or other tax wrapper are not interested in spending hours each week investigating which individual stocks they should buy or sell. Even if they are interested, they may feel or come to realize that they are psychologically unsuited to managing their own investments, getting sucked into buying the highs and selling the lows. The second biggest reason is performance. There are two important dimensions to this. The first is that, historically, the majority of trading that went on the exchanges was conducted by professional fund managers managing billions of dollars of assets. These are then competing with each other to beat the index. However, what does this actually mean? Chapter 5. To Infinity and Beyond, or To the Moon and Back? It was JFK's father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., who decided to completely exit the stock market when his shoeshine boy started giving investment tips, since he knew that the market had become too popular and an influx of investors overvalued the companies within it. Joe Kennedy managed to make a fortune by getting out before the bubble burst, taking all the novices with it. One of the questions on everyone's mind at the moment is, are we in for another roaring 20s, or is it 1929 again? What does the future hold for the U.S. and other global markets? The first thing to emphasize is that I don't own a crystal ball, and I can't time the markets better than most other people. However, what I can do is read the data. Currently, on 16 measures of valuation, the U.S. stock market is extremely overvalued. In fact, there's only one significant measure that does not show this, and that's a new measure. I don't want to spend too much time on the short term, as by the time you read this, it may have all changed anyway. What I should point out, though, 
is that when a market correction does happen, and it will, in fact, it may have already started, then we need to look for signs that it is ready to turn into a full-blown bear market where all the cyclical factors driving the market up go into reverse, and it keeps drifting down, as happened in 2000 through 2002. The market did not recover fully for years after. Actually, you have to look at Japan for a complete picture of how black it can get. It's taken nearly 30 years for the Tokyo Nikkei 225 to recover. It still has not reached its previous peak after falling in 1992 during the deflation. Chapter 7. A Dynamic Risk-Adjusted Asset Allocation When Benjamin Graham wrote The Intelligent Investor, he recommended a portfolio for the defensive investor as well as one for the enterprising investor. I wanted to return to these portfolios and set out an updated strategy for 21st century investment conditions. I think it's fair to say that investors with these portfolios would not have fared very well over significant periods of the past 50 years. We can look at why this is the case in some more detail. However, before I move on, I want to state that I favor a more nuanced approach than Graham. You should consider your duration to retirement, or more specifically, the proximity of your need for income before deciding on an asset allocation. The Defensive Investor Portfolio There has developed the general notion that the rate of return which the investor should aim for is more or less proportionate to the degree of risk he's ready to run. Our view is different. The rate of return sought should be dependent, rather, on the amount of intelligent effort the investor is willing and able to bring to bear on this task. Graham, the Intelligent Investor the defensive investor, standard allocation, bonds, 50%, equities, 50%. Minimum equities overvalued, bonds, 25%, equities, 75%. Maximum equities undervalued, bonds, 75%, equities, 25%. From Graham's advice on which stocks to buy, we would have to conclude that right now, stocks are overvalued. So we would be in a position of about 25 to 30% equities and 70 Conclusion We started on our journey by looking back at the lessons imparted by Mr. Benjamin Graham in his treatise, The Intelligent Investor, teaching us about value investing. Among the key lessons was that a good investment is not a good investment when made at the wrong price. We learned how to look for value that would ensure the best chance of realizing a profit on our investment and avoiding losses. We recounted lessons that should be applied by the defensive investor with a suitable portfolio mix. However, we also learned a little that the world is not the same in all respects since 1972, and that we could apply some learning from the past 50 years to update and tweak some of the theories to become even more relevant. In Chapter 2, we discovered that the economic cycles in the global economy could be influenced, to an extent, by population demographics. We saw that asset prices had become inflated, but this has more to do with the GFC, artificially suppressed interest rates through QE, rather than an excess of assets acquired by boomers. However, we concluded that just because the baby boomers were moving into retirement, 
we could not conclude that the economy was doomed to a decade or more of stagnation as they liquidated their stock holdings and wealth. We then turned our attention to two very topical investment styles, value investing versus growth investing, Warren Buffett versus Kathy Wood. Growth investing has been smashing it out of the park lately, but that's due to the phasing of the economic cycle. It looks like that value shares will be coming back more into fashion. We can see that both approaches have their strong sides and their problems. For value investors, the issues arise when the economy is growing strongly. Then they end up... Chapter 6. Protecting Your Investments The Most Critical Factor That Will Determine the Performance of Your Portfolio there is one economic measure that will determine how the 2020s will turn out. As we said in the last chapter, will the market go to infinity and beyond? Could we see a general uptrend with the odd correction of 10 to 25 percent? Or will it be a case of to the moon and back, going into a significant bear market like the early noughties? What will determine which of these outcomes we get will be the interest rate environment the interest rate environment will in turn be determined by inflation and inflation expectations. Even as I've been writing this book, some of the short-term things are already starting to happen around us. Last week, the bond vigilantes rode back into town, determined to intimidate everyone. The simple fact of a drop in cover of a U.S. Treasury auction caused bond prices to spike, causing a 15% fall in the value of ARK in just three days, just as I predicted in Chapter 5. The Nasdaq fell 3.5% in one day, and Asian markets matched the fall. This wasn't even a failure. Not enough buyers of the auction, just a drop in the number of bidders from the usual 2.5x to just 2x the value of bonds on sale. This is reminiscent of the taper tantrums in 2013, and with echoes of 1994 following the Asian markets crises. There have been signs for a few weeks now. Everyone knows that the most significant double dose of monetary and fiscal stimulus since the 1940s threatens a resurgence of inflation. We all know, deep down, that inflation is the only realistic way out from under the mountain of debt. This has been an updated investment strategy for the intelligent investor, a Stock Market Investment Guide to Grow and Protect Your Money Using Dynamic Portfolio Management Written by Tom Cromwell Narrated by Russell Newton Copyright 2021 by Platinum Edge Media Limited Production Copyright by Platinum Edge Media Limited Amazon.com has more information regarding the author and this book. With an eclectic collection of water cooler knowledge, inspirational stories, and motivational thoughts from some of the newest audiobooks on the market, this has been the Voice Overwork Podcast, brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services.